Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Radine's Jackie Gardina and Mitch Winnick. Welcome back to Sidebar. In episode one of our interview with law professor and author David Knoll, we were warned that vigilante laws such as SB8 in Texas are authorizing private individuals to target, surveil, and intimidate vulnerable members of our communities based solely on religious ideology. In episode two, we will discuss the risk of these type of laws, redefining our individual rights based on which state you live in versus a unified set of rights defined by the U.S. Constitution and the Supreme Court. David, welcome back to Sidebar. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's great to have this new podcast. You're exploring really important issues. David, in your article, Vigilante Federalism, that you co-authored with John Michaels, you explain the so-called tort of outrage. State legislatures are creating private rights that allow individuals who have suffered no real harm to sue people engaged in certain behavior, such as facilitating an abortion or teaching a particular concept in the classroom. And under these laws, an individual, such as a doctor, or a nurse, a teacher, a Lyft driver, or librarian, can be sued in state court for as much as $10,000 plus attorney's fees and court costs by anyone who disagrees or is outraged by their conduct, even though their conduct may be constitutionally protected. As you've explained, these types of state laws enable private lawsuits to target certain vulnerable groups and individuals in a manner that may be unconstitutional if the same legal action was taken by the government. How is this going to play out going forward? As we grant rights to the groups that are going to enforce these laws, and as the laws are used to bully and intimidate their targets, that's going to have follow-on effects for the way that people participate in, in, in democratic life. And, and that's really sort of what worries John and I uh, about these laws as a long-term matter. Because if you're saying that outraged people have, you know, have the ability to, to sue people who are seeking abortions, people without legal status who are, who are just trying to work uh, in the United States, or uh, LGBT kids who, who just want to go to school uh, and play on their local sports team, what you're sort of what you're doing is changing who gets to have rights to participate in democratic society, and ultimately, right, that that I think is going to have feedback effects on politics. So, for example, right, you already see right a lot of families that have LGBT kids moving to different states because sort of right the effect of these laws is so crushing. That's terrible for them because they have to pick up their lives because right these laws are empowering their neighbors uh, to to persecute them. It also has perverse effects on politics, right? Because all of a sudden, right, those are people who are not going to vote in the, in the next election, or those are people who can't participate in public debates in that state. And so they have this, you know, the laws have this homogenizing effect, right, or, or this effect of, right, sort of uh, allowing the people who wield them to, to bully their way into getting what they want. David, 
how far do you think a state legislature could take this? My concern is that this same approach could be used to allow state legislatures to draft laws that target individuals in a manner that intimidates or restricts voting rights or ballot access, like states did in the Jim Crow era. Is that merely me being an alarmist, or do these laws actually lay the groundwork that would make this possible? Thankfully, you know, we're still waiting for the other shoe to drop and for somebody to write one of these laws that really goes after ballot access. But when that happens, what you're going to see is people simply trying to literally participate in democracy, right? Going going to the ballot box. If you violate, you know, some some rule about, um, you know, handing out water bottles to voters who are waiting in line or something like that, you're going to find yourself on the receiving end uh, of one of these lawsuits. And it's very, it's not at all fantastical to, th- to think about how that's really going to distort our politics. Dave, David, let me go. Let me push. Let me push a step further on this because I, you know you started this conversation by saying it drives behavior and it drives behavior of the populace and those who believe in this. It legitimizes a certain activity to say I can have this quote tort of outrage and it legitimizes my right to march down to the courthouse and sue you and get $10,000 or more from you and my lawyer's fees. But it strikes me that once you legitimize that behavior by statute, and then perhaps you and your co-author pour f- fuel on the fire by talking in terms of the vigilantism and uh, corrosive politics and weaponizing legislation and subordination regimes. I mean, you're marching down this line to say, well, isn't it a thin line from marching to the courthouse to marching to the Capitol and, and using physical acts from my legitimized outrage. Yeah, there's a couple reasons uh, why we thought it was important to put those big labels uh, on on what is going on. So one is, and I think this, you know, there's an interesting connection to the midterm elections and, and to what the president was saying about the threat to democracy in the United States is that looking back at history, um, we know that there are sort of anti-democratic forces that, that don't support the sort of the normal operation of politics and the, that are willing to pursue their means through bullying, intimidation, uh, efforts to change the rules of democracy uh, itself. And sort of, again, looking at historical examples where this has occurred, one thing you see in successful efforts to resist that is naming things by their proper name. And so, right, if we characterize these laws as you know, simply, you know, a conservative version of, uh, of a lawsuit that allows people to recover if they're in a car accident, you're not really capturing what's going on. And right. And that runs a risk of normalizing these laws when when we're sort of when, in fact, sort of their effects on the real world and the, their effects on politics are quite different. David, this idea of not normalizing this, these types of laws and calling them out as a danger to the democratic process is an important distinction, but you are categorizing them as vigilante laws. That's a provocative phrase. Why is it appropriate? The other reason that we think of these as vigilante laws is that we don't think it's an accident that they are being enacted at exactly the same time that extra-legal vigilantism is surging. So whether it is armed protesters taking over state houses, 
or whether it is people taking it upon themselves to enforce immigration laws or the surge of guns uh, that we see in our communities. Extra-legal vigilantism is very much a thing, and right, political violence uh, has, been, has been surging. It's quite important to recognize that these laws are being enacted, right, and they're coming out of the same pocket of politics, those laws. And so one way of looking at these things is, oh, you know, shouldn't we be grateful that people are allowed to go into court and sue over this? Because if they can go into court and sue over this, then that's more civilized than taking your AR-15 to an abortion clinic and standing menacingly outside. Or to the Capitol. Or to the Capitol, <laughs> which, which we have some recent experience with. When you think about the movements that are behind these laws and the role that they're playing, they're unfortunately more of sort of an added tool, which is adding to the toolkit of that part of right-wing politics that rejects ordinary democratic engagement. And we thought it was, despite the risk of, of, of pouring gasoline on an already polarized uh, political environment, we thought simply for the sake of describing these things accurately, that it was important to draw that connection to show how the laws work hand in hand with violent forms of partisanship. We are talking today with David Knoll, the author of Vigilante Federalism. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. Sailor Legal Service has been on the California Central Coast since 1991, under the same ownership and with the same capable team. Sailor is a 100% woman-owned business. If you call Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, this same capable team will answer. You can communicate with the same person each time you contact Sailor. For your orders to subpoena records, on-site copying, process serving, and court services. SailorLegal.com. S-A-Y-L-E-R Legal.com. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoints, and PDF help streamline your workday? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertus is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. ProCertus is reshaping online learning. Come check us out at www.procertus.com. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. Welcome back, everyone. We're speaking with David Knoll, co-author of Vigilante Federalism. In the article, you and John suggest that this type of vigilante federalism is here to stay. So how can we counter it, or what's the answer to what's going on? A couple thoughts on that. So simply recognizing right, the phenomenon and naming it. Another piece of it is sort of recognizing that this is a concerted strategy to what's happening with the, the January 6th commission. I think a lot of people before the commission had its hearings 
saw the attack on the Capitol as uh, you know something that's enormously alarming and bad, but but they didn't quite appreciate the extent to which it reflected a concerted political strategy and maybe even a top-down political strategy that right that folks at the highest levels in in government were putting together. And something very similar is happening with vigilante laws, right? You, you have a relatively small group of activist networks that are really outraged about, about reproductive health care, about LGBT rights, about the anti-racist movement that came out of the, of the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests. They are sort of targeting these different groups. You know, I think it's important to see that when you pull back from any of these particular examples, whether it's Don't Say Gay or, or Texas SB8 or, or any of these laws, they're all working out of the same playbook. David, this scenario sets out a relatively gloomy future of using these private action laws as a replacement for policies that, frankly, can't get passed through federal or state legislatures. Is that really what we have to look forward to? Now, as you say, right, there's sort of a, a doom and gloom aspect to that um, because uh, the backers of these laws are quite organized. They're quite effective at getting legislation through state houses. They have a strong network of lawmakers who are willing to work with them. At the same time, there is, there's something optimistic in that because if the different groups that are targeted by these laws can recognize that really they're in it together and they're in it together for no reason other than the fact that they've all been targeted by this strategy, you're talking about a coalition that's really big right? and, and right, has the ability to, to prevail in, in political contests simply because there's so many people that this strategy affects. So I think this is sort of when we think about these laws, this is really a moment where we don't want to simply be thinking about abortion rights or LGBT rights or free speech rights or teachers rights. We want to be thinking about people's right to be free of vigilantism, right, and to, to participate fully in the democratic life of society, because that's what's being threatened by these laws. And when you put all of those groups together, right, you have a you have a coalition which is which is more diverse, which is broader, which is stronger than you know some of the coalitions behind our major civil rights laws. What John are, and I are doing are struggling to get get people to see sort of they're in it together, right? The, the importance of intermovement connections and uh, and working together. Let me go back to a point that I made earlier in the program. There's a temptation to talk about this as if it's a new phenomenon privatizing causes of actions as a way to bypass what otherwise might be seen as violation of civil or constitutional rights. Protections such as the right of free speech, anti-discrimination, and access to voting. You know, in the long run, sort of, this isn't the first time that powerful political actors have tried to empower private citizens to, to enforce their agenda in the United States. There's a, right, there's a, a, a very disturbing history of vigilantism being used under Jim Crow, where Jim Crow legislatures are either expressly authorizing vigilantes to, to enforce Jim Crow laws, or just as frequently sort of turning a blind eye to outrageous acts uh, of private violence. And that, that, that's central to Jim Crow. If you go back before Jim Crow, you have the Fugitive Slave Acts, which deploy a lot of the same tricks uh, as, as the laws that we're seeing now. And again, looking historically, sort of, we know that sort of the strongest and most effective response to these kinds of regimes has been to nationalize fights over them, right? And, and particularly to codify the rights that are under attack. As I mentioned earlier, the Jim Crow laws that enforced racial segregation throughout the southern United States 
are a perfect example of how powerful these types of state and local laws can be, especially in the absence of federal intervention. We forget that these laws were in effect for almost 100 years, from the 1870s until 1965. In fact, some states are just now removing these laws from the books. Jim Crow, right, legally doesn't come to an end until the Civil Rights Movement and Congress enacts the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And in large measure, that's because you get a federal right to be free of discrimination in employment and various other settings uh, where the Civil Rights Act operates. And so, uh, right, sort of recognizing um, everything about how, how closely divided the country is and how every election is, is, you know, is decided by these small margins, we do think that it's important to be thinking about national legislative responses to that. And that's, you know, that's the, that's, that's the 10 or 15 year goal is, is to say if, if Texas is going to unleash neighbor against neighbor to penalize this target, what we really need is a, is a federal right to protect you against that. We started this discussion about SB8 in Texas, where the results of years of gerrymandered legislative districts have essentially created a one-party state. This is the context of creating a statutory private right to sue a patient or doctor for no other reason than you disagree with access to reproductive health care. Is this why you think addressing these issues on a federal level is more reflective of a democratic process? And the politics of that are a little different than politics in Texas because you don't have the same gerrymandered state legislature. You have different coalitions. It's difficult to get laws through Congress, but we think that in the long run, the fact that this development is affecting so many groups creates the possibility of a, of a federal legislative response. David, to take the same exact theme and flip it somewhat, it strikes me that what you just said about these types of activities moving the needle on, on federal legislation, is it fair to say that's exactly what California did with their, their mirror of the Texas SB8, but in the framework of gun control, gun restrictions? So we can't seem to get gun legislation through the national legislation. Why not take it on at the state level? The bill you're talking about, for folks who haven't heard of this before, what it does is it, it literally copies and pastes from, from Texas SBA. But it says that sort of instead of getting the right to sue somebody who performs an abortion, there's a, a private right of action that, that, that runs against sellers of ghost guns or, or, or sellers of, of assault weapons. And the law is deliberately designed as a, as a provocation to the U.S. Supreme Court because when SBA went up to the Supreme Court, a lot of people, myself included, were saying to the court, look, if you do this for abortion, there is no constitutional right, which is safe from a state's efforts to eliminate the right simply by giving private people the right to suppress it. And the, the court's response to that uh, in, in the whole women's health case was, uh, we, don't, we don't buy it or, or, or we don't care, right? We, right? we think that the theoretical right to defend these lawsuits in state courts, despite you know sort of the fact that they are, as a practical matter, eliminating a constitutional right, is good enough. And so uh, we're not going to un understand our justiciability doctrines in a way that lets you get effective relief against the laws before they take effect.
We are speaking to David Knoll, Assistant Dean for Faculty Research and Development and Professor of Law at Rutgers Law, and he's the co-author of Vigilante Federalism. We're going to take a break right now to hear from our sponsors. Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, and Empire College of Law provide on-site and hybrid online evening weekday classes that provide you the option to continue working while attending law school. We're currently accepting applications for our 2023 spring and summer semesters. For more information, go to montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. Your community, your law school, your future. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, Trellis. Welcome back to our discussion with David Knoll, who's talking to us today about the idea of vigilante federalism. David, how did California make the leap from private action against abortion to private action against the sale of assault weapons? That seems like an improbable leap. So what California did is where California said, all right, well, if you're going to use this against abortion, we're, we're going to do the same thing for sellers of uh, assault weapons. There's some important differences, though, between the, the California law and the Texas law that, that, I, that I think are worth drawing out. So one thing, which is a, a point that Professor Jake Charles at, at Pepperdine made, which I think is a really important one, is that the California law doesn't actually violate a constitutional right, at, at least under the, right, the Second Amendment jurisprudence that's applicable in California. So there's, there's much less of a sense that it is, it is sort of defying the authority of the Supreme Court or, and defying the supremacy uh, of federal law. But the other piece of it is that Texas SBA was playing into and taking advantage of a really well-developed activist network in Texas of folks who are stridently opposed to any form of abortion access and, and see abortion as murder. And so the, there was no question when the Texas legislature passed SB8 that there were diehard activists who were going to enforce the law. David, if I can interrupt to ask, are you suggesting that an important part of the Texas version of this type of law is that there are political or religious groups ready, willing, and able to bring these as political or ideological lawsuits versus a lawsuit to obtain damages for injuries like we see with the Fair Labor Standards Act or certain environmental laws or the discrimination laws. Part of the law's effectiveness and part of the, the threat of the law was that right? nobody had to guess whether, whether suits would be filed because the folks who wrote the law uh, right, and these various other anti-abortion groups uh, were, were committed to stamping out abortion access. The politics of gun control are a little bit different because right, there are, you know, there's plenty of people who think that more responsible gun regulation is needed and is consistent with the Second Amendment. 
But this is not a community that is sort of that that is used to protesting at gun shops or threatening people who who purchase guns. And for obvious reasons, you can understand why sort of the, the protest and the intimidation tactics that have been deployed against abortion providers haven't been uh, deployed uh, against gun shops. And so, you know, I haven't seen any study of the, of the California law, but, but my sense is that because you're missing that piece of it, um, it hasn't been that, you know, sort of that forceful of, uh, of a regulatory tool. Now, I might be wrong on that, right? It, it, it might emerge that, you know, sort of the Brady Fund or, or somebody like that starts organizing these lawsuits and, and we something, see something that's, that's equally powerful coming from the left. But, you know, even then, there's an important distinction to be drawn because the law isn't going after marginalized groups, uh, right? right? The, the gun lobby and, and gun sellers exercise enormous political power. They oftentimes talk about how they're willing to enforce that through force. And that's it's just a completely different situation than uh, than right somebody seeking out an abortion in the middle of a miscarriage uh, who is threatened with the prospect uh, of a bounty suit under SB eight. If I could digress as a law professor for just a moment, there is one amazingly curious part of the SB thirteen twenty seven. It actually writes into the law that if the U.S. Supreme Court or the Texas Supreme Court were to determine that SB 8 is inoperative by law or unconstitutional, that act would render the California gun law inoperable. Mm. I, I don't know about you. I don't think I've ever seen a state legislature say that the effectiveness of our state law will be determined by another state's Supreme Court. I don't think I can think of one. There's, there's various kinds of anti-abortion trigger laws that said the moment the Supreme Court overturns Roe, all kinds of restrictions will go in place. But I think that, that sort of, you know, it, it highlights a really interesting feature of these laws. People sometimes talk about sort of asymmetric politics or asymmetric hardball. And there's a there's a sense that, at least in recent decades, right-wing actors have been more willing to push the envelope and to press their advantage than folks on the left. And I, the California laws, right, it's a really nice example of that. So, right, if, if, you, if you really wanted to see a left-wing version of SBA, it would be something like you're subject to a $10,000 bounty lawsuit if you give large amounts of money to politicians, right? Or if you defy COVID regulation, right? It wouldn't be tied to what's happening in, in Texas. It would just be, you know, this is this is the way it's going to be. And we're going to empower these private parties to bully you into submission. And it strikes me that it is important to repeat that what Texas is trying to do is to use the threat of these lawsuits as intimidation to deny otherwise constitutionally protected behavior versus providing injured plaintiffs the right to recover actual damages. And that's different than the message that California is sending to the United States Supreme Court, right? And that's not what California is doing, right? California is, right, is saying to the Supreme Court, look, you don't want to do anything about these laws. We can make use uh, of them too. But the measure is so, you know, it's, it's limited to, to assault weapons, right? Which, you know, you know, you're not defying huge majority is when you say, you know, we don't want assault weapons uh, on our streets. So it's, it's really just, you know, it's a more timid measure. The provision with respect to the Supreme Court, you know, I think it, um, it reflects, you know, some concern about 
you know, sort of a game of tit for tat. If you deploy a full-fledged California law, maybe that's setting up Texas to to pass an even more restrictive law that goes after other activities and other values that California cares about. And then you're really blowing up the difference between Texas and California. And, you're, you know, you're really creating a regime where you don't have a single set of rights as an American. And right, you have to be thinking, you know, I'm in Texas now. What am I allowed to do? I'm in California now. What am I allowed to do? David, it sounds like we are again risking a historical return to having fundamental constitutional rights defined geographically, or perhaps it's more accurate to say geopolitically, versus a single set of rights defined by the federal constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court that applies to all of us equally. We have recent experience with this with marriage equality, Before the Supreme Court interpreted the Constitution to include marriage between same-sex couples, those couples would have their marriages recognized at state law and the legal rights associated with them blink off and on as they cross state borders. We've had that. We, We had that under Jim Crow, right? We had that prior to the Civil Rights Act. But that is not a vision of the country that most people want to return to, right? The idea that you have a, a single set of civil rights and constitutional rights is just enormously powerful uh, and I, I think important to a lot of people. And so when you see California saying, right, we're only doing this as long as Texas is doing it, I think there's sort of a reluctance to go all the way down that road. And right, despite the fact that SBA gives you this battle-tested template for enacting these kinds of laws, to sort of fully balkanizing uh, the rights that people have in different states. David, obviously we could talk about this for hours. I think Mitch and I both enjoy these kinds of conversations immensely, which is dangerous for our listeners because it means that our podcast could go on for hours. But we're going to thank you for for the the conversation that you did provide us today. And I know that you and John are working on a a book that really expands on these ideas. Could you just talk a little bit about the book and when you expect it to come out so our, our listeners are aware? Of yeah, it? absolutely. So um, what we're doing in the book is uh, sort of we're telling a fuller version of the story of, uh, of vigilante bounty laws that, that allow people to go into court uh, and, you know, and sue people over these kinds of activities. And, it, you know, in the book, we, we go all the way back to the Fugitive Slave Act and right uh, the, the two Fugitive Slave Acts and talk about um, really the playbook that they created, uh, and then sort of how the use of private enforcement for purposes of subordination fell out of favor, and then, and then sort of the, the political conditions that caused it to come back. We also talk about sort of the changes in conservative politics that made this possible, because I'm old enough that I sort of I remember when the conservative position was that trial lawyers are, are you know, a, a very bad thing, and exact attacks on American business, and we should be extremely suspicious of grassroots activism and uh, private lawsuits. So we document sort of how, following the rise of the Tea Party, attitudes towards private activism activism and, and private enforcement changed. But then the other thing that we do is we look at different arenas where uh, where vigilantism is happening. One area that's that's really important to think about is the schools, all right? And sort of the, the same network of actors that are enacting laws that create a private right of action are encouraging parents to 
to control what's happening in classrooms and in libraries. Oftentimes, these are giving people supercharged rights to control what happens in, in classrooms without the necessity of, of, of assembling a majority of people in a school district. And so we think that's very closely aligned with uh, what's happening with the vigilante laws. We talk, uh, we talk more explicitly about efforts to restrict access to the ballot and the ways that vigilantism is attempting to shape who's allowed to vote and who can exercise political power. And then we also talk about sort of the violent street vigilantism, vigilantism side of that. And sort of the piece that we explore there is that along with laws that allow people to bring lawsuits, there's a whole slew of laws that are uh, encouraging different kinds of political violence. So, you know, stand your ground laws and, right, and, and things like that, that are more or less sending a message that it's okay to target particular communities and sort of encouraging people to use violence to, uh, to accomplish their political objectives. And then we try and chart a way forward, right? We try to show that, right, this really is affecting a broad coalition uh, of people. And there is, right, there is political power, right? There, there is a, a political way to, to resist vigilantism. I think folks should be thinking about federal protections for the rights that, that these laws can target and doing the really hard work of thinking of what that legislation would look like and, and thinking about how it can get through Congress. Well, really looking forward to, to reading the book and hopefully having you and John on when it is published and available to a broader audience. Thanks a lot. Great to be here with you. Mitch, I don't know what you thought, but I know when I first read David Knoll and John Michael's article, and I had just come from reading David Pepper's Laboratories of Autocracy, I just could see how much they fit together and how important it was for us to have our listeners understand um, not just kind of the, the voting and democracy piece of the state legislative system, but then what's the very real effect of what's happening at the state level, those laboratories of autocracy, and what's coming out of them that have real-world implications for fundamental and constitutional rights? Well, you're right, Jackie. I, I must say I started this interview after having read Vigilante Federalism honestly, at a much greater level of concern, because my, what, was, what was in my mind after David Knoll talked about this idea of private subordination regimes and individuals taking on the role of just deciding on their own when they want to target someone to, to, for a lawsuit when the individual has no damage per se. Uh, but after David talked about it in greater detail today, I like the way he ended it, which is perhaps this is part and parcel of the path forward to get these issues in a more consolidated manner where it brings people together under a framework of change and then it percolates back up to either the state or the federal level to have these protections, these constitutional rights that you and I are talking about on this program. And that maybe maybe, I'll try to be positive here, maybe this is part and parcel of the circular process of getting policy made that brings more people into the conversation rather than fewer. 
Yeah, I think that you're right. I, I mean, one of the things that I'm struck by from the guests that we've spoken to so far is that this has been a constant battle in our legal history. Uh, David Pepper and David Knoll both reflected back on the Fugitive Slave Act and on Jim Crow era and how it was really the 13th Amendment post-Reconstruction, and then the Civil Rights Amendment in the 1960s and the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s, that federal effort that really kind of switched the tide from what we were seeing at the state level. And maybe that is part of the cycle that we go through in this society as we struggle with kind of morphing into that inclusive, pluralistic democracy. And like you, let me tie the two conversations we've most recently had, one with David Pepper and now with David Knoll, which is a call to arms to us as individual citizens that we cannot take this for granted, that if we want to have policies and legislation reflect our beliefs in a, a democratic process, we have to pay attention and we have to participate. Um, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we didn't get to tease out a lot with him, but I think it's important for us to, to spend some time on, and maybe we can in a future podcast, which is this idea of competing rights. It has really been highlighted in the post-pandemic world, but it's always been a tension in our society regarding religious freedom and public accommodations. And what we're seeing this vigilante federalism do is really pit rights against each other. And one of the things that he brought up, but we didn't get to expand on, is this idea of, for example, laws that allow people or provide them a defense if they injure a protester or if they kill a protester. The idea that stand your ground laws that allowed for George Zimmerman to defend against killing Trayvon Martin. Those are those kind of pieces of legislation that are pitting individuals against each other in terms of whose rights trump. And I think that transfer of rights within our society is a really important thing for us to think about and focus on. I agree wholeheartedly. And without being perhaps Pollyanna-ish. Uh, let me also say that I don't think it's fair to say that these issues are entirely a factor of laws and legislation. We shouldn't be let off the hook to have these conversations for the pluralistic society you're talking about in our communities, in our places of worship, in our schools, in our town halls. I don't think we get a pass to say, well, it was the state legislature's fault or it's the federal government's fault. It's our responsibility. It's our country. It's our democracy. I think we should speak up on a daily, weekly, monthly basis in our own communities to let these, to encourage these conversations. That, I suspect, is the long-term answer, not waiting for a gerrymandered district to change hands. Well, hopefully this podcast will spark some of those conversations. So 
Thank you to everyone for joining us at Sidebar. And we look forward to having you back with us in a couple of weeks. Thank you to our corporate sponsors, Sailor Legal Services, Presertus, and Trellis.Law. For more information on Jackie Mitch and Sidebar, go to sidebarmedia.org and join us at the Sidebar. California accredited law schools, including the Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law, provide affordable, quality legal education in evening online and on-site classes. Our law school graduates qualify to sit for the California bar exam and upon passing are licensed as California attorneys. For more information about attending a California accredited law school near you, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.